You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures. To all of you listening from around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Deal, and rejoining me in the studio after a week of being neck deep in projects. Everybody say hi and welcome back. Brandon Gorey. Yeah, baby. We are back and we are editing full time. We're busy. We're doing projects and we've got news. What's the news, Kevin? Uh, well, eventually we're going to start live streaming uh, on YouTube. That's some news. That'll yes, be good. Uh, we'll talk more about that maybe in another episode, but uh when our, with our news, I don't have anything like specific to talk about with the news, but we are going to talk about some some news of Brandon's uh, later in this episode. Uh, I will say, so uh, Photo Deox, uh, I have a I have a YouTube channel, and Photo Deox sent me a light, and I'm going to show it to Brandon right now. So hold on a second, I can edit this if I need to. Oh, it's just the flat circle. Hold on, no, no, no. So. Photo Deox makes this light called a warrior and they're not a sponsor of this channel, but they do sponsor my YouTube channel. Uh, and I don't have a use for this light in my home studio. So I'm bringing it up here to the studio that I shoot at my non YouTube studio, but this is a 300 watt IP rated, which means it can get rained on. Uh, it's a, it's a led light. It's 300 Watts. It is so freaking bright. It has all nitric connectors and, yeah, Neutric connectors, Powercom, that was the word I was looking for, is Powercom connectors. You can just plug this thing up, let it get rained on, and it'll be fine. It is so freaking bright, but I'm reviewing it for Photo Deox, um, and uh, they gave me the hookup on this, so I'm super excited about this light. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I have going on is uh, Photo Deox. Yeah, that's a lot of light. I'm looking at it right now. It, it's a massive brick. The box itself, like how much does that weigh? It looks like it weighs like 35 pounds. Uh, I would say the whole thing is like 15, 15. Okay. It looks 35 weighs 15 could be 20. We'll see. Here. You, you lift it. It's actually more than 15. It's probably more like in, in, in box, probably about 30. That's 30. Yeah, it's about 30. Brandon lifts. So for those of you who don't know what yeah, his, his guns look like, I have, I have the I magnificent calf muscles, but he has the magnificent guns. I got, I got little spaghetti arms right now. I haven't been in like two weeks, but yeah. that's besides the point. Yes. So our sponsor today is Gamut. Gamut has new LUTs. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a LUT is, look up the table. If you are, if you find yourself being a videographer and you're just like, oh my God, this whole color grading thing is foreign to me. I don't even know where to start. Or if you are a color grader, videographer, cinematographer, and you find yourself in a LUT, 
Oh, wait, I just said find yourself in a LUT. I meant to say if you find yourself in a rut, get yourself a LUT. I get stuck in a LUT all the time, Kevin. In fact, you know what is really interesting? To add on to your gamut sponsorship, we're going to be talking about the Nikon Z8 in this episode. A little segue is... Funny enough, the best Rec 709 conversions on the market right now for Nikon Z8 is um, is Gamut. They come from Gamut. Well, Gamut has nine new LUTs that they're releasing, uh, which is awesome. So go check out that promo. I know that they're also usually offering 15% off on your first purchase. I don't know if they're still running that promo by the time you hear this pod, but go check it out, gamut.io, or better yet, check out the link in the description of this podcast, and uh, that will get you well on your way to getting better color grading for your video. So anyway, Brandon's been away, and uh, something else that I want to talk about real quick before we dive into uh, Brandon's brand new purchase, which is I did two pods by myself, which we're trying to double up the amount of pods that we do, which of course doubles the amount of effort we have to put in. And so I found myself, we found ourselves in a situation where it was like, well, uh, Brandon's super busy this week. And guess what? In the future, I'm going to find myself super busy during the week. And so for us to keep up two pods a week, sometimes we're just going to have to fly solo. And for those of you who don't know how we do things uh, in this studio, you know, Brandon tends to sound a little more calm and collected and has less, uh, and you knows as I do like to fill in time because I actually am the board operator and the person who records. And so I'm also usually the one who has the subject in front of me and I'm kind of steering the episode. So I have way more stuff going on in my head and he just has to sit there and go, okay, Kevin said this, so I'm going to react with that. So just want to set that up. It was uh, doubly hard uh, doing it by myself with nobody to bounce ideas off of because sometimes I'm just going to like, sometimes I go, so Brandon, tell me what you think about that. No, no, no. I have to react when you go on a fucking 10 minute spiel about like the deep text about a certain thing. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Let's bring it back to reality here for a little bit. But sometimes I do throw something off Brandon just because it's like, oh my God, I got to set up the next segue segment, whatever. And so I'm just like, hey, Brandon, tell me your thoughts on this. And then I'm like frantically at my computer, not paying attention to him at all because I'm like trying to get everything set up for the next thing. So what, what, what we're trying to say here is there's a metaphorical conch that we're passing back and forth. And what you're not seeing is that we're taking turns doing behind the scenes uh, uh, diligence, due diligence for the podcast. Yes. And I cannot wait to hear Brandon do his first solo podcast because uh, he'll probably uh, have a train wreck at some point. And he'll have to edit out because it is, it is stressful enough doing it where you have, you have a safety net of, Hey, Brandon, take over for a second while I figure out what's going on with this or, you know, whatever. And when you do it by yourself, the train is on the tracks and you, I mean, yes, you can edit pods after the fact, but I'm always like the same as I am at the camera. Get it, get it at right, get it as right at the camera as possible. So you don't have to do editing later. I try to do as little editing as possible. And, uh, I'll tell you what that, uh, increases quite a bit when you're, when you're on your own. But anyway, so, uh, those of you who listen to this pod know that I am the gearhead. I love to talk X's and O's. I love to talk about, uh, dynamic range, all those fun little things. Uh, I'm always the one out there. buying the new gear. And, uh, today Brandon got a bug up his ass. Brandon went out and bought a Nikon Z8. So Brandon, what was the driving force behind this? The driving force behind this was 
I'd been to, in the past six months, I'd been to a number of photography events. Um, I'd been, you know, I do video for a living. Um, I've been shooting a lot in studio, a lot out of studio in more dynamic places. I've been shooting um, darker situations. And the Nikon Z6 that I have been using with the kit lens, uh, though it has served my, my photography endeavors really well, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I felt like it was time to just get a professional camera and I've been working really hard. I've been getting, um, a lot of gigs. And so I just, you know, uh, I saw an opportunity. I was like, you know what, let's just get the Z8. Um, I feel, I, I thought before buying the Z8, after looking at all the reviews, I was just like, okay, if I get this camera, I will not be left wanting for quite a while. That was the goal. And as I've now put three shoots through the camera and tested out its 8K footage, um, I I don't think I'm wanting anymore. Quite quite literally, I, I think every I think I've solved everything. Uh, whether it's the eye tracking autofocus uh, continuous during a shoot, whether it's the fact that um, third party lenses on the Z8 work better than native lenses on the Z6 for autofocus, uh, whether whether it's the smooth, the buttery 8K footage that you can shoot in um, at 8.H.265, it's there's a lot going on with the Z8 that I really love, and it seems to solve every problem that I've had with the previous cameras. And what's really nice is it's it's built around the same Nikon ecosystem, so it's just plug and play. Uh, I know the menus. I went from my Z6 to the Z8. And without even testing it out really too much, I went to a shoot and it just, it fit right into the flow, right into the process immediately. So I'm, I'm checking out the specs on this because I, as big of a gearhead as I am, I'm only a gearhead about things that I use and I don't really pay attention. Like I don't, if somebody said a Sony, whatever the hell, Alpha, whatever, A, I don't, I don't, I, I'm like, I'll use a A7 III. I'm like, what is that? I don't even care. But uh, I'm I'm kind of that way with Nikon, but I do know that the higher the number, usually the better the camera. So a Z8 is better than a Z6. It's two better. So too is better. your camera two yeah. better? It's actually three better because there's a Z7 II. Oh yeah, yeah. So they they decided that the Z7 one wasn't good enough, so they made a Z7 II. Nikon Nikon released their Z lenses, their Z camera, and the autofocus sucked so much on them compared to Sony and Canon that they're like, okay, <laughs> we're gonna make a Z. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna make a Z7 II. Let's let's quickly fix that. It, Fuji inexplicably did that with the XT30. So I own the XT20. They came out with an XT30, which is really weird because in the, in the Fuji lineup, like. The, the XT, anything with a two number designation on it, so like an XT20, XT30, that's like your very entry level. So I would say low priority. And then above that, you have like your XT3, XT4, XT5. And those are the better, more flagship style Fuji cameras. So for a lesser camera, for whatever reason, they decided to come out with a second version of an XT30. And I'm just like, like you guys really sell enough XT30s to justify making a Mark II? But sure enough, they did. Um Looking at your camera though, 47, I'm sorry, 45.7 megapixels for stills. It has a stack sensor. It has a stack sensor. Oh, that is awesome. Nobody is more excited for your camera purchase than I am <laughs> because I am a Canon R5 user who has a 45 megapixel non stack sensor. So you know what that tells me? The chess piece has been moved. Capitalism is in motion. And now Canon has the onus on them to have to react to it. And they're just like, oh, fuck. You want to know, know something else, Kevin? What's that? 
when I turn my camera off, there's a sensor cover. They finally figured it out. They've got one on the Z8. I'm so happy because I'm so happy because another camera was announced that I did an entire pod on our la- my, the last pod that I did by myself, which was the brand new Fuji GFX 100 Mark II. And the Fuji GFX 100 Mark II is a 102 megapixel sensor. Uh, obviously, it's not stacked. I mean, I, I get it. It's 100 megapixels. That would be really hard to do. Uh, improved autofocus, yada, da, yada, da. However, for a $7,500 camera that has a sensor that is 60% larger than your Nikon, my Canon, because we both have 35 millimeter sensors, does not have a curtain that closes down to protect it from dust. I cannot think of a stupider move. And, you know, I have a Canon R7, which is a $1,500 crop sensor camera. And anybody who knows anything about Canon knows that Full frame is where all their money goes. And it's the same with Nikon. Did Nikon make, Nikon makes crop sensors, right? Oh yeah, they got the Z5. Yeah, they got the Z5. But I guarantee you in the Nikon world, it's the same thing. The new features come out on the big badass cameras and then they slowly trickle them down to their their crop sensors over time. Even the $1,500 Canon R7 has the curtain that goes down in front of the sensor to protect it from dust. And so- Kudos to Nikon for having this because every camera manufacturer should have this. So proud of them on that. And it looks like the price on it, $39.99, is awesome. Now, did you trade in your Z6 or did you keep it as a backup? I kept my Z6. Smart man. Uh, I, oh, I I very rarely sell camera bodies. Um, now, I have sold... I did sell my 6D to fund my purchase of my EOS R because I was switching systems. I was going from a DSLR to mirrorless. So that's that's a, a big transformational thing as a photographer, and it made sense to trade in that camera body. Um, outside of that, I'm trying to think if I've, I've ever sold... I sold an R7 as well. Not R7, I'm sorry. I did not sell an R7. I sold a 7D, which is what the R7 replaced. I also sold a 7D as part of my funding to get into the EOS R as well. So I sold two camera bodies to get into mirrorless, which I have no regrets on, by the way. Uh, And that's it. So I I tend to keep camera bodies for quite a while. And um, with that announcement of the GFX 102, uh, I concluded that I'm probably going to wait to upgrade. And the reason why is while it does have improved autofocus and all that, the big thing about it is that it doesn't like, it doesn't fill a need for me at the moment that I can justify spending $7,500 on, which is the majority of the work I shoot on my Fuji GFX 100S is personal work. I do some paid work on it. As a matter of fact, I have a, I have a campaign that I just got hired for this week that they gave me their mood board and everything looked like it was shot on a Fuji GFX. And I'm just like, okay, I'm going to use my Fuji for that. But in general, I tend to use my Canon R5 and you know, for $7,500, just to get improved autofocus, which is really all I give a shit about, I don't think it's worth it. They ha- they really, really rolled the dice on video. The amount of stuff they're doing on the new GFX for video, like I hope it works out because it hopefully will push the video industry in the right direction, and I hope that it helps attract more people to the platform. But the biggest reason why I'm holding out on it is, like I said, I use it for personal work, and for the majority of my personal work that I do, the GFX 100S, yes, I have to work a little harder to get the shots, but I can get the shots, and that camera is paid off. I, I, I paid cash for it, so I owe nothing on it. And man, to just go and drop another $7,500 right now, because uh, okay, I don't know if I, I trade it in, but the real reason why I want to wait is because for about half that price, 
Canon is going to have to react to the Z8. And they're going to come out with an R5 Mark II that's going to be ha have to be priced about the same. So $39.99 is, is what the Nikon goes for. The current R5 is $38.99. So my guess is it's either going to go up to $39.99 or they're going to make it like $45 or somewhere in there because Canon has to beat their chest and go, we're a little more expensive because we're a little better. At least that's their attitude. But the rumored specifications on the R5 Mark II are 61 megapixels stack sensor, which then all of a sudden it's like, wow, 61 megapixels sure does get me a lot closer to 100 megapixels. And, you know, the interesting thing, though, about that new Fuji GFX 100 Mark II is that if they came out with a GFX 50 Mark II and put all the exact same things in it, but made, a, made it a 50 megapixel sensor, I may actually just go buy that right now because it'd be about $3,000 less. But uh, yeah, that's I'm excited because we're going to get uh, that, that basically forced Canon's hand. They have to come out with an R5 uh, Mark II and they have to do it soon because their big like decade drop has to happen next year. Like it's going like I don't know anything about rumors. I don't know anything at all, but I guarantee you Canon's biggest announcement of the decade is co going down next year right before the Olympics. And that's going to be the R1. The R1 is going to be their flagship. It's, you know, because they have the EOS, um, was it the 1D, which has always been like their big Olympic sports camera. Right now they have a bridge. They have the R3 and that's cool. The R3 is a great camera. It's $6,000. Uh, and uh, the beautiful thing is, is they're going to take the autofocus out of the R3 and they're going to drop in the new, the new uh, R5 Mark II. So I'm going to get better autofocus than, I mean, close to perfect. Like if I take a thousand shots on my R5, I miss one. Like that's how good it is. I'm sure your Z8 is the same way. The Z8 is fantastic. Um, one thing that I'm still getting used to is working the autofocus uh, selection. So there's autofocus, single autofocus, continuous and autofocus, like full-time autofocus. And um, in photo, in the studio, when when you put your trigger on and you've got like the, uh, the LCD back screen sort of like mimics the exposure that you're going to be on, um, I do find that my the the camera does hunt a little bit on autofocus continuous or autofocus full time so it does have to be like a single thing and if i'm doing specifically like like a small point autofocus and it's really going for the eyes even though it's like a 45 megapixel uh sensor it's it still hunts for the eyes so i find that i have to put on a more like wider like like a like a wider autofocus to where like i can just kind of like move the red square that's going to be on the screen onto the subject and then hit autofocus and then it's like, boom, it's like right there, it's tack sharp. There's very little breathing or hunting and it, it nails the shot. But it's significantly better than your last camera, the autofocus. Oh yeah, well that's the thing is just like, you, if you're shooting a daytime, like golden hour, like anything besides a dark studio with a single key light, uh, like like model lamp on, it's it's insane. It can, it can track It can track anything. Even on video at 8K, I've tested this out. I have my brother walk around uh, the apartment and I was using 85 millimeter 1. Uh, 1.8 and I just, I had eye tracking on and I went and put it in DaVinci Resolve and I checked the, like, I, I checked the hunting and the breathing and everything. And it was like, there was none. And that's a, that was on a third party Viltrox lens and Viltrox isn't exactly known for being fast autofocus on Nikon, like whatsoever. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. I will say, and I'm, I'm, I'm plugging my YouTube channel here. I just did a review 
Viltrox just launched a pro line, which is, of course, they're just way of saying, oh, we have a red ring. What, is, what does Nikon have? Do they have like a gold ring or something? What's their... They've got the S. The S. Well, do they have like a little badge or something for their best lenses? Nope. There's okay. no GM. There's no red ring. It's just the yeah. S. All right, cool. So uh, Viltrox decided to launch their pro series, which, I mean, I can just take anything and put the word pro on it, right? But... I don't know. What does that mean? You know? Yeah. But... Is but like they, the art series of Sigma? Like, you know... Yeah, they decided to launch their own series that is marketed. And, you know, that's a bold thing to do. But I'm telling you, uh, they, they launched a 75 millimeter 1.2. And I use it on my Fuji. And it is wide open at 1.2 as razor sharp uh, for a crop Ooh. as my, as my $3,000 yeah. Canon lenses. And so, you know, obviously medium telephoto lenses, they tend to suffer from two things. They tend to suffer from being soft wide open. And then they also tend to suffer from inc- insane amounts of chromatic aberration and fringing. And it was very minimal. It was very minimal. I had no lens corrections on it. And I'm looking at these wide open shots with pretty decent contrast in them, uh, situations. And there wasn't a lot of, a lot of, uh, fringing. So anyway, that's yeah. awesome. That, yeah. that, that, Canon, that, well, Canon's going to have to catch up with Nikon for like one other reason is Nikon's shutter, uh, max shutter speed on the Z8 is one thirty two thousandth of a second, which means you don't need to use an ND filter at 1.2 in the day. Are you talking about, uh, but that's an electronic. Yep. Yeah. I can top that. My, uh, Fuji X-H2 that I have, do you know what the, the fastest shutter speed is on that and electronic Mm-mm. one, 180 thousandth of a second. I can, I can shoot a speeding bullet with it. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. So neither Canon nor, well, of course. But, but I mean, the auto, you know, that's the trade off is the autofocus. You're not going to get a moving target with that thing whatsoever. No, no. The, well, yeah, in general, the, the, the XH2, you know, I've, I've always said that Fuji, and I, I'm actually recording, um, I'm recording a, a video for YouTube right now where I'm putting the R7 versus the XH2. And the, the declaration I make there is that, Fuji always seems to be one generation behind Canon in terms of autofocus. So where the Fuji X-H2 is right now kind of reminds me of where my EOS R was when I bought it in 2018, when it came out in 2018. It's about where that is, which in general isn't bad. That's not a terrible place to be. But when you compare it to the advancements that Nikon's made, Sony and Canon have made, Fuji is always one step behind in terms of autofocus. And that's always been the thing. The Achilles heel of Fuji is that their autofocus has always been kind of meh. But um, so have you had a chance to test that stack sensor out uh, in low lighting situations where you don't have supplemental lighting and you're just stuck with low light? Yes, yes, yes. Um, on native lens. Okay. So I'll, I'll just set the scene here. And basically the low lighting situation is I'm in a studio. It's a black walled studio. Kevin knows it. It's called the black box here, uh, where we're based out of. And I'll get the model in there. I'll put on the model light. Uh, the, the flash I usually use is a flashpoint 600, uh, P what is it? 600 P something? Uh, no, 8,600 BM. 80, you're talking about the big, ugly 600 watt second lights that I have the big, big, yeah, yeah, those are those yeah. are eighty six hundred BMs. They're mon- they're uh, manual folk- uh, manual manual only, not TTL. Okay, cool. So th- those are what I'm using. I put on the model the model light mode, and so basically when the model light mode is on, there's like nothing else uh, going on. There's no other light in the room, and the black walls absorb that light pretty well. So I'll, I usually shoot between f eight, f eleven, one two hundredth of a second. I can go higher, but one two hundredth is you know. It just makes sense. I've been shooting there for so long. It doesn't really matter for me to go much higher. 
And uh, I'll do an ISO of anywhere between uh, 64 and 400. Um, I believe the native ISO for the ZA is 64, which gives a lot of dynamic range, but uh, it does get pretty dark with that single key light setup. So anyways, uh, with the Godox trigger on, I have noticed that like, uh, even though the stack sensor reads um, really, really quickly, uh, the, the autofocus uh, just doesn't catch up in that sort of situation. It is, it is a little bit slow. It does hunt and there is a little bit of breathing. Um, now that's if you're, that's if you're trying to like focus for every, every shot. Um, if you're focusing for one shot, it's about maybe 0.6 seconds for it to focus. You know, you, you will see that like little, like that little stutter, uh, that, that little breath as it's focusing, but it'll, you know, it'll invariably give you the little like ding, green box, you're focused, you're at F8, F11, doesn't matter, you don't have to refocus even if the model's going through like a rhythm or a bunch of different, um, you know, a bunch of different poses going through their cycle. And so you can just start hitting your shots uh, there. And what's cool is um, if you're the type of person that goes through a number of shots or the model's going really quickly, uh, you don't have to do a single frame shooting uh, I usually do just because I, I'd like to say that I'm pretty good at picking my frames and seeing the moment that I want to take as the model's flowing. However, if you don't want to do that, uh, the Z8 does have 20 frames a second uh, raw capability. And if you're shooting in JPEG compressed, which no one would really do in any situation unless uh, it's you know very specific and you're just trying to get photos done, exported, and out to your clients with like um, like no editing whatsoever... Uh, or just like minimal editing, you know, you're going to throw on a grade and just process within like an hour of shooting or something like that. Uh, you can do 120 frames a second at JPEG. Uh, so, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of options. It, basically the only gripe I have with the autofocus is in dark situations, you're not going to get that tracking, um, the way you would in any other ambient light situation. That sounds pretty badass. Coming up, we're going to talk about the video features on the new Nikon Z8. Hey, this is Doss Miller, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. One of the things that seems to stand out to me as a Canon user are the new video features of the Z8. Mm. Uh, as I'm as I'm looking right now, I'm, I'm just going to talk to you about this as a Canon user, things that I see on this that are going to force Canon's hand here. So, um, waveform monitor. That's cool. They have a waveform monitor on it now, which my R5 doesn't have. Uh, it has... <laughs> the recording border like what is it what is it with ma camera manufacturers it's like who, the programmer is like hey you know when when it records we should put this tiny little uh two-point font thing that says rec and then put a tiny little red dot in the upper right corner to let you know that you're recording of course well, nobody does, holds the lcd screen right up to their well, face does, does you does that canon shoot log it shoots log, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. They all they all shoot log. I'm not worried about that, but but just putting well, a red you know, border around the screen, letting me know yeah. that I'm fucking recording. Because a lot of times I'm holding the camera away from my face. I'm like, am I even recording? And you have to like squint your eyes. It's like I see this gigantic red box on the outside of my frame. I'm recording. Like uh, Atomos has done that for years with their ninjas. I have the Atomos Ninja, and it does that. Like just do it with your freaking cameras. Like Fuji doesn't do that either. Like what is wrong with these people? Like they just put a tiny little, and then the red thing blinks in the a upper little, right corner. Yeah. Like, give me a fucking tally light, bitch. Yeah, because, no, in my videography job, because that's what, that's what I do full time is uh, I use Sony's and they don't have that big red screen or like anything like uh, the new FX3. Well, it's not new anymore, but um, the FX3, when you're recording on that, there's a, you know, the, the shutter release button literally just lights up and glows red like it's easy to see. 
but um, anything anything lower than that, like you don't get a recording box, you just get a little, little red dot. And what stresses me out is I'll like look at the camera to make sure we're recording as we're doing, you know, we're recording some very vital footage and I'll walk away and I'll just be like, in my mind, I'm like, are we recording? Like, do I need to walk over to the camera and like look again to see if we're recording? So big gripe, um, definitely love the red box uh, recording on Nikon and, and the waveform as well. Uh, the, the reason I was asking if your camera shot log is if it if you're only shooting standard, you don't need a waveform. A histogram works just fine, but the waveform helps with grading log footage so you don't under overexpose. Yeah, I love I love waveforms. Um, I, I I'm excited because it looks like some of the features that the Z8 has are in the Canon R5C, the cinema version, and that's that's the that's the wall that Canon has been backed up to into is because. Canon purposely will put certain features inside their cinema line and they won't put it in their quote unquote regular R5. But now it's kind of like forcing the hand. It's like, well, you're going to have to put waveforms in there because the Z8 has it. And so any little bit I can extract out of the, uh, the cinema line and put into the new version of the R5 will be happy with the, the big thing I want to see them do. And I don't think I see this on the new R8, but I could be wrong. I'm not R8. I'm Z8. I'm a fucking idiot. The new Z8 is I don't see an anamorphic mode. Uh, what's cool about the Canon R5C is you can put it in anamorphic mode in the menus and be like, well, what kind of stretch do you have? It's like, oh, I have a 1.33. Like, great. And it'll take your waveform monitor and stretch it out properly so you can just see the back of your LCD screen and, and shoot an anamorphic. And I have an anamorphic lens um, that I use for the EF mount. And so, I'm sorry, for the RF mount. Actually, it's, 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 an, it's an RF mount because... Canon, that's the one thing that, that, that Canon has going wrong for them is that they, and I get it, they will not open up the RF mount to third-party lenses for autofocus lenses. For manual focus lenses, like anamorphic lenses where you focus pull, they don't give a shit. So the cinema line for RF, I would say, is starting to thrive. Uh, there are companies out there that make RF lenses for the cinema line. And interestingly enough, Canon, I'm just going on a little side tangent about Canon, something that I observed when I was at WP, when I was at WPPI and I was at their booth, I was like, why don't you guys make anamorphic lenses? Like you guys make beautiful spherical cinema lenses. Why don't you make anamorphic lenses? And I know one of the cinema guys is just like, yeah, that's a great question. But uh, all these other companies like Shuri and I was at Irix or whatever, they're, they're cleaning up house. Uh, when it comes to, and what was it? What's the other one? Mindkey or something. I forget the name of it. There's all these like chat. Mine key is a, is, is a garage. It's an auto shop. Mine, my, milk. No, there's a, there's a, I forget, I forget the name of it, but you're right. It is mine key or whoever's a garage company. They make a, they do, they do car repairs, but there's another company I see every now and then on Amazon that sells uh, anamorphic lenses. So I, I don't know. It'd, it'd be kind of cool to see. Uh, I love watching these companies sweat, you know, and like I, we've talked about it in the past. Fanboyism always pisses me off because people are like, my camera's good enough. I love it. I'm going to beat my chest. And the only reason people get that way is because they want to justify the fact that they parted with $4,000 and they, it, it, they feel like it validates their, their, their parting of their money. You know, it's like, Oh, I, I, I spent $4,000 on this and I want to convince myself I made the right choice. So at any moment in time, I'm going to remind myself that I made the right choice. That's not how I look at things. I look at things like, okay, I spent $4,000. Here's what's wrong with it. And here's what I want to see on the next version of it. I hope that Nikon and Sony and Fuji come out with something that forces Canon to do this on the next version. And I feel like that's how you should be as a consumer. But apparently when it comes to fanboyism, I'm in the minority. I think, I think Nikon for the longest time, um, 
right before releasing Mirrorless and today is they've really like their their market hasn't been uh, consumer or even prosumer. Uh, their their market has been you know selling their flagship camera for for. Uh, you know, National Geographic photographers, you know, Olympic photographers and that sort of thing, uh, because I think their high-end cameras have been delivering exceptionally well. Um, however, you know, now it, it kind of feels like Nikon has sort of addressed uh, the consumer market with the Z8. And I know that's kind of a ridiculous thing to say because of its price point. It is a $4,000 camera, you know, essentially. And after taxes, you're paying, you know, dollars $4,200. $4, um, that's what I paid for, for from B&H. Not a shout out, but that's just what it is. Um, you could have gotten the tax off with the PayBoo card. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but, well, yeah. I mean, or I could have just, you know, gotten a, a, a Capital Venture One card and gotten points and $3,000 back for travel rewards in one purchase, but here we are. So it's, it's nice to see Nikon making a camera that sort of competes in the consumer market. They're delivering on something that, um, that lets their more layman photographers work. You know, it's, you're not purchasing the Z9, which has an ethernet cable, you know, access to it, which would be, you know, which is insane. Um, they're kind of just competing in the consumer market. And it's, it's nice because I was using the Z6 and it wasn't like the optimum camera. I wasn't in any of the conversation about autofocus or about shooting log, you know, Nikon hasn't been in the log conversation for a while now. And they've now got integrated log in their two cameras. Because before that, if you wanted to shoot log on a Nikon, you had to spend 500 bucks for a, a Ninja Atomos five. And the whole workflow was it was ludicrous. And you had all these YouTube videos of people justifying their spend. They're justifying like why they're shooting log on a Nikon. And even though I'm a Nikon user, I look at those videos. And I'm just like, yeah, if I have to buy an external recording device to shoot log on a camera, like it kind of, it's just like, why would I bother? You know, like it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Plus the log infrastructure for Nikon is so under supported right now. Um, I will say this Nikon, you're doing a terrible job about that. Uh, on your website, you've released your Rec 709 conversion LUT and across the board on every forum and in my own personal experience, it is quite possibly the worst LUT I have ever used uh, for conversion. In fact, if you go to DaVinci Resolve, which is a free software, by the way, you can make your own LUT in about three minutes by simply going to your color nodes and doing a CST conversion with, uh, with inputs of uh, you use the Nikon inputs and you use an output of gamma 2.4 and I believe uh, uh, N-Log for your, for your output in the CST. If you're, if you're a video guy and you've used DaVinci before, you know exactly what that means. But what I'm saying is you get better Rec. 709 conversion from using a built-in gamma and, and log detection um, software, log detection algorithm in DaVinci Resolve than what Nikon is actually releasing. So I've already made that conversion LUT for myself. I've already made a number of LUTs, um, especially learning from a guy on YouTube named Wakaz Kazi. He's probably the best colorist on YouTube right now and um, has been for a while and he uses DaVinci Resolve. So if you're looking to figure out how to grade log footage the correct way and instead of just throwing contrast on your log footage, definitely check him out on YouTube. This is Katrina Brown and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. It's interesting you say that because our next episode we're going to do is we are going to talk about our favorite YouTube episodes. Just a plug. If you if you want to learn who our, who our favorite YouTube uh, YouTubers are, we're going to talk about that. But let's stay on the subject of video. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
something else I want to add is something fantastic is not only does Nikon shoot um, ProRes RAW uh, internal now, which is absolutely insane. In fact, if I, here's the thing, I went and got a CF Express card with write speeds of over 1200 megabytes a second or megabits a second. And is 128 gigabytes and I threw it in my camera. I was just like, okay, this should be enough data, right? Um, I've used the A7S III at 128 gigabytes and it did prove to be enough. So I went and saw my time limit for recording 8K at 30 frames a second in 12-bit ProRes. <laughs> and, and I had like four minutes of recording time on an, on an empty 128 gigabyte memory card. That's funny. <laughs> so, so now I'm looking at the Lexar Pro one terabyte because that's the only way to do it. Like if you want to record 8K at anything above 10-bit, you're just, you're SOL with anything below a terabyte. I love that you're rattling off these beautiful specs because I'm holding a Fuji X-H2 in my hand right now that also shoots some ProRes and Canon doesn't. And that means that they're going to have to come out with it. So this is absolutely like music to my ears. It's like, oh yeah, Brandon's camera does 8K 60 frames per second. Love it. I'll never shoot at that, but it just means that the oversampling and stuff like that at the lower, the lower resolutions is going to look better. Now question for you. Uh, when you shoot in these higher, like, so it does 4k 120, which I actually think that my R5 does that as well, but with no, with no sound, it's just like slow-mo. Right. But, uh, do you find any overheating issues? Do they make an external fan for it as an accessory? How does all that go down? Because I know that with R5, the biggest, I, I will say this, cause like I said, I'm not the type of person who kisses camera manufacturers asses. When the R5 launched, there were some revolutionary things that came with it. But I will say to a man that the fucking launch of the R5 was rushed and went to market before the video was all the all the issues were worked out. Because if you shoot at 4K, uh, 60 frames per second, like it overheats within a matter of like a few minutes. Like it's just like, oh, I have to shut down. And it's like, bro, this is a $4,000 camera. Like what's the point of even bragging something has 4K 60 frames per second if it can't even do it. And actually, actually I shot yesterday, I, I shot 4K 30 frames per second for about 25 minutes and the heat warning started coming on. In my studio where it was 72 degrees, I was just shooting a YouTube uh, intro. So anyway, have you experienced anything so far with heat on your Z8? Uh, no. Um, I will say that's a, that's a great question. And that's something I've actually looked at. When I was looking for the optimum cards for video and photo uh, to use in my camera, by the way, it does accept an, uh, it accepts SD cards, QXD and CF Express B and A, I believe. And so as I was looking up these cards, there is a massive issue right now. I can't remember which card. It might be the SanDisk uh, 512 gigabytes or one terabyte. I don't, it's one of those two. Apparently there's a huge issue where if you're recording video, yeah, it might be. And that's, actually, that's that's what I have. That's what I have in my camera right now. Yeah, the Extreme Pro. That's cool. Kevin just took his uh, CF card out of his camera to show me. Um, but no, there's a huge issue online, and I haven't experienced it where y you won't not you'll not only get a hot card warning, but when you take the card out of the camera, like it it burns you. It's hot to the touch. Like you can't take it out. Um, the camera itself doesn't overheat, but the card there's a writing issue with the card, and the speeds are too high. And I don't know if they're they've adapted the cards to it. I know, I know there are some brands that it's fine. It's, it's a non-issue. Um, I know that a lot of guys have, ex um, on the forums have talked about recording 8k in 75 degree weather in New York, you know, outdoors. 
and it hasn't been an issue. The camera hasn't overheated, but there's a specific popular brand of card. I think it's SanDisk that is just uh, like not usable. Like it will melt the inside of your camera. That sounds wonderful. So as somebody who sometimes shoots outdoor weddings in Texas in July, uh, that's, that's terrifying. So uh, my Fuji X-H2 and my Fuji GFX both have overheat issues uh, shooting stills. I've been having issues with that. Uh, internal heating. I, I actually did a shoot for a wallflower up in Dallas, and it was 108 outside. And I was out there for 20, 25 minutes, and my, uh, my X-H2 was like, fuck you. I'm going to shut down. I'm like, dude, I thought you were a pro. You're your $2,000 camera. So, you know, we all have things that we hate about our cameras. Uh, we all have things that we love about our cameras, but I love it when companies push the boundaries forward. Coming up next, I'm going to ask Brandon, uh, the question that's on my mind, the ultimate question. So stay tuned for that. Hi, I'm Jordan Groby and you're listening to the F11 photography podcast. All right. So Brandon bought a Z eight. I'm super proud of him. Uh, I even played the effect sound of the crowd cheering because, uh, the non gear guy went out and just dropped some coin on a badass camera. And of course I have my selfish reasons that I talked about. And I love that. I love that it's going to hold Canon's feet to the fire and I'm going to get an R five Mark two that that's going to be awesome. But the ultimate question on my mind is when are you going to understand that, uh, glass is more important than bodies and that there are some lenses out there that will blow your fucking mind. And when are you going to go get them? Okay. Okay. That's a phenomenal question. And I've already, I've already taken a step in that direction. I recently uh, purchased as well as the Z eight, uh, the Nikon 14 to 30 millimeter, um, F four. There is the F 2.8. And I looked at it and I looked at a fro nose photos video and I know we're plugging YouTube videos in another episode, but he compared the 2.8 and the F4, and there was such a minimal difference. Not only that, but the 2.8 is marked as an S, which is a, the professional line of Nikon cameras. The F4 is also marked as an S. Um, and so I just decided, okay, I'm not going to shell out the extra grand for the 2.8. So I did get the F4. Um, that, also, that also being said, um, there is another... There is another YouTube channel that I rely on to review lenses, and I, I forget what it's called. It's like three blind mice and an elephant. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that. They're mostly they're mostly Leica shooters, which is <laughs> this it's is, an older guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Hugh, I, I watched Hugh. him for I watched Hugh for like a like a Q three stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Hugh's phenomenal. So I trust Hugh with my life on on lens uh, lens ratings, and what he said. Um, about the the latest Z fifty one point eight is he said that basically with the coating and the the glass quality of that lens is there's no better fifty millimeter out there uh, except for probably a Zeiss lens and just that's him pixel peeping and reviewing the lens and just going over like the sharpness from from center to edge in term uh, as well as vignetting and just everything you look for in a lens um, and, and even going beyond for the for the nitty gritty stuff that most people won't care about nor notice if they're buying a $500 lens. And so Nikon has released this $500 50mm 1.8 and I've got Hugh over here who uses nothing but Leica equipment uh, telling me that it's, it's comparable, um, extremely comparable to Zeiss glass. And so, you know, naturally I'm just like, I, I definitely have the bug. I do want to go out and, and get more glass. But at the same time, at the same time, I'm also coming from a background where I've, I've made um, 
award-winning work, and I say award-winning, I've, I've you know won a couple awards for the Moscow International Photo Awards, and and also gotten featured in um, uh, some publications that were awards for like uh, I forget the magazine, but yeah, maybe we cut this point out. I, I wasn't prepared to go into that, but but I always I, be prepared to <laughs> brag on yourself, dude. I yeah, that shows you how how prepared I am to brag on myself at all times, but. The bulk of my work um, coming from a Nikon Z6, which is an extreme, extremely consumer grade camera, you know, also using a 24 to 70 F4 and being able to accomplish what I've been able to accomplish just by bumping the ISO up three stops. Um, the glass, as crucial as it is, as sharp as it could be, I don't, I don't have that uh, recognition yet, you know. But I think I will soon, especially going into Capture Pro with a 45 megapixel, uh, or mega, yeah, megabyte photo, I will probably start to be able to tell the difference a little bit more with the sharpness and the quality of the glass as I uh, zoom into the photos. <clears throat> well, I used to be obsessed with camera bodies. I was like, Oh, this new feature came out. I'm going to go check it out. And then, uh, somebody gave me some really good advice. I don't even know if they were addressing me directly. Or I just saw it in a forum. I can't remember exactly where I saw it, but the best advice I've ever seen is, uh, date your camera body marry your lens and lenses are for life. Camera bodies are temporary. You're going to go through camera bodies. You're going to have some new needs, but uh, when you have, when those needs arise, if you have glass that can capture the moment, um, you know, as, as I've, as I've harped on over and over and over on this pod glass gives you advantages, get it right at the camera. Um, and that's your first opportunity to do so. It's one of the reasons why I don't use lens filters, uh, UV filters is because like, man, I just spent $3,000 on this lens. Why would I want to put something in front of it? Fuck that. I'll just have insurance. And, and so that's your first opportunity to get it right. And then a lot of times people say things like, oh, well, I don't, I don't shoot at 1.2. And it's like, that's not the point. That's not the point at all. It's not about shooting at 1.2. It's that usually the, if you want like the absolute sharpest shots, it's usually when the lens is stopped down anyway. But if your lens can get to 1.2, the, at the point at which it becomes super sharp is more wide open. So you can shoot at more wide open and get sharper images. Now, the newer optics, like my Canon RF 85 1.2, I shoot that bitch at 1.2 and it looks so sharp. I'm like, this is, this is so awesome. But anyway, there are, there are times where, you know, shooting that wide open is cool, but it, it's also the advantages it gives you stop down. And, uh, but anyway, I just wanted, I just wanted to uh, give Brandon a, a round of applause for, for going with the ZA. I'm so proud of him and I'm, I'm glad that he's joined the, uh, the gear slut, uh, the gear slut, side of me and it's welcome. So problematic i've gotten i've gotten like so much like little gear like i got like some road wireless microphones like wireless lav mics and like a that's bunch what of i got those are cool though. yeah those are fun they have their they have their flaws but uh it's funny we'll we'll talk a little bit more about um those microphones in the next in one of our next episodes but uh but yes brandon do you have any final things you want to say about your z8 anybody who's on the fence about maybe getting it one thing I didn't include, which I'm really, really stoked on, is when you shoot in ProRes RAW and NRAW, um, the camera internally already makes uh, full HD proxies for you. So you don't, have to, you don't have to worry about a proxy workflow in your, your video editor. It's, they're already available. 
That's really, and really awesome. It's just, it's just ridiculous. I feel like, I feel like Nikon was just like, okay, we've been the black sheep for so long. You know, our consumer cameras are, are like our toys compared to the competition, always a step or two behind. And I feel like Nikon just, you know, they, they just, it's like, it's like they just entered the market with the F2 all over again, you know, but, um, I think Nikon in the past have shown that they're, they're, they're about it. Um, their craftsmen, you know, they, they love great craftsmanship when they released the FM 3A. Did you know the latest, like the last, uh, mechanical Nikon was released in 2006, the FM 3A. And it was after they'd already been releasing digital for, for like 10 years at that point. And they just over-engineered it because they could. They knew no one was going to buy it, but it was a film camera. It's a little like, you know, like titanium or whatever brass film camera. And it was just over-engineered to an insane point. And, but they released it anyways. Um, and so I think Nikon's carrying on in that spirit and they're just kind of like, all right, they're pushing the tempo a bit. And um, I'm excited to see um, how the other camera companies respond and how this whole thing starts growing because it's happening quicker. The technology is growing at a quicker right. pace. It's, well, it's getting insane. Well, Sony, I think, just made an announcement of their own with a new camera upgrade. So Canon, Fuji, the chess pieces have been moved. The onus is on you. That does it for today's episode. We thank each and every one of you for listening and sticking around. Even if you're not interested in Nikon, this affects you because if you're a shooter of another brand, uh, competition is a good thing. And we like competition. And so I've learned over the years to embrace things that I don't have in my system uh, because eventually it will be in my system. So take that lesson to heart. And until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.